2: Hello, welcome back from your weekends. Uh, I will apo- I will apologize in advance for any cognitive fogginess. I didn't sleep last night, or at least I don't think I slept last night. People who think that they had totally a sleepless night often turn out to have slept, but they sort of just dreamed of their own sleeplessness. That may have happened to me. But anyway, I will try to be as razor sharp as coffee can possibly make me. Uh, And let me begin by setting the stage. We've got two uh, very interesting guests here at the beginning of the show, and then for the uh, final two segments of the show, I'm just going to take phone calls from you on this topic. What is this topic? The topic goes something like this, I think. Um, White power movements in America aren't new. They didn't start with Charlottesville. They didn't start with the election of Donald Trump. They didn't even start with the election of, uh, of Barack Obama, although I think Barack Obama's election... Uh, helped revive the interest in certain corners of the white power movement. But they've been around forever. Uh, and I mean, somebody sent me a video today of a Ku Klux Klan demonstration in 1982 in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, in uh, 1987, there was a major trial uh, of what appeared to be a white power conspiracy to do some kind of violence. Uh, it ended uh, inconclusively. But then in 1995, I mean, Timothy McVeigh, I, I think to a certain degree, we never can, kind of came to grips with the the degree to which Timothy McVeigh was a very heavily well-networked white power activist, in, in addition to being a terribly violent man. Uh, There was a tendency to link up to Waco and not much else, but that's not right. So this stuff has been around. It's been around much longer than that, too. Um, But we've seen certain kinds of variants of it surfacing, and we certainly saw one year ago in Charlottesville a certain kind surfacing. So one of the questions is, is there some kind of recrudescence here? Uh, is it the same thing that it's always been? And, and then the the second half of the question is, particularly because you know there was sort of low turnout uh, yesterday at the uh, anniversary rallies, um, has it moved someplace else? I mean, it'll move a little bit underground into uh, living rooms and basements, but also has it moved into the mainstream? That's an argument that's being made in a number of quarters that things are being said now in mainstream media uh, that were formerly the vocabulary of the white power movement um, I may wind up arguing that that also is not all that new. But let's get to all this now. Brendan O'Connor joins us, freelance reporter covering fascism, white supremacy, and neoliberalism. His work has appeared in publications uh, such as The Nation, The New Yorker, uh, The New York Times Magazine. Uh, Jane Coston, senior politics reporter at Vox uh, with a focus on conservatism and the American right. They are both with us for this segment. Uh, Brendan, I- I'm going to start with you. You attended the uh, rally yesterday in D.C., uh, maybe you could just sort of give us a sense of, to the best of your ability, to sort of figure out uh, who was there and uh, and establish some kind of classification system for everybody who was there yesterday.
1: Uh, hi, yeah, right. thank you for having me on. Um, so, who was there yesterday? I mean, the the, the primary organizer of yesterday's events was uh, Jason Kessler, who organized the Unite the Right rally. <clears throat> In Charlottesville last year, um, this was his attempt to uh, sort of commemorate um, that event in his own toxic way. Uh, he was joined by, uh, I, I think, the, the, the highest number estimate that I heard was was, was no more than 30, um, 30 people who. In terms of their place in the broader movement, there um, we were basically nobodies. Um, mm-hmm. There were a handful of folks with uh, uh, identifiable white supremacist tattoos um, referencing uh, uh, various neo Nazi discursive symbols, um, and, and other folks in uh, draping themselves in American flags and other patriotic, patriotic garb, um, but there were really no... Uh, none of the heavy hitters, as it were, of the movement were interested in having anything to do with this event on Sunday.
2: And why was that?
1: Um, why was that? Partially because of where where the movement is at more broadly right now. Um, the The last year or so has seen... Um, sustained pressure from from militant anti-fascist and anti-racist activists across the country, confronting them uh, where they appear in public and outing them to friends, family members, co-workers, employers, as well as increased media scrutiny from various investigative reporters at, at different outlets um, that have shed light on the various uh elements within this movement and their connections to some of them are active duty military some of them uh, are people who have who work for defense contractors um some of them are just you know regular middle class people but when you get outed as a as a fascist or white supremacist that makes your life more difficult in most parts of the country um and so i think that this movement is recalibrating um it's like how, how it works, who it is looking to for leadership. And I think that right now um, Kessler is uh, – his, his his star has faded, um, mm-hmm. and, and people don't want to have anything to do with him. They don't trust him. They don't think that he has the best interests of the movement at heart, um, and so he wasn't able to turn people out.
2: Um, I want to add uh, Jane Costin to this conversation. Um, do you want to um, add to Brendan's analysis? What, what, yeah. What, yeah, go ahead.
0: I think that, that that's a really good point. Is that not you know not only is the movement somewhat in disarray since last year, both because of the cultural ramifications that you know you spoke about earlier, but also because of legal considerations. You know, Richard Spencer is probably one of the more well-known white uh, white separatist leaders of this kind of alt-right movement. You know, he himself has said that, you know, he can't he was doing a college speaking tour. That tour has been canceled. You know, he cannot he's being sued for as a result of what took place in Charlottesville. And he for a while could not uh, afford an attorney. And, you know, Jason Kessler himself also, you know, it should be noted, is deeply unpopular within this movement, in part because of what happened last year. But it also in part because he has attempted to really uh, break away from the. You know, outright neo-Nazi elements, which um, are within the alt-right, which to those groups makes it seem like he's you know pandering or something like that, or not taking this seriously in some way. So I think that you know the low attendance yesterday was both the result of what happened in Charlottesville, but also the result of Kessler's increasing unpopularity within the, the movement. And people, you know, you saw people from you know neo-Nazis like Andrew Anglin writing about how, you know, do not go to this event. This will ruin your life. Because, again, you know, when you take someone's picture and are able to determine that this person is actually running college Republicans at Washington State University, life will get very difficult for that person.
2: Right. I mean, Jane, we live in a different era than we lived in even 10 years ago. Uh, you take somebody's picture, you can uh, put it up on social media, crowdsource it, people can use facial recognition software. I mean, your, your chance of being an anonymous uh, white power protester, unless you're actually wearing a Klan hood or something, seems to have gone way, way, way down.
0: Right. Though you know, it is worth noting that's that is why the Klan wore hoods.
2: Right. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, uh, uh, Brendan, Jane, sort of, both you and Jane are kind of uh, positing a, a fracture within that within the white power movement itself, to the extent that it was ever. Uh, and uh, understandable as a larger kind of movement. And so it sounds like there are some people who beheld uh, Kessler and what was happening yesterday and said, well, that's just not Nazi enough for us. And and he's even kind of tried to shoo Nazi elements uh, away. does Kessler represent, or, or is there some kind of um, part of this movement that is trying to get a little bit more mainstream, a little more Breitbart, a little less Der Stürmer?
1: Uh, absolutely. I think that we, for examples of that, we should look to the West Coast uh, and, and specifically the Pacific Northwest, where a guy named Joey Gibson. Um, has established this kind of banner organization called Patriot Prayer under which, uh, it, which, which functions as, as a kind of big tent um, for a variety of groups with different kinds of reactionary politics. There are out-and-out white supremacists and neo-Nazis and uh, Confederate revival, revivalists who find a home under the banner of Patriot Prayer, but his um, his politics as an individual and his core of uh, allies and compatriots, which is m- mostly made up of a group called the Proud Boys, um, which was founded by vice co-founder Gavin McGinnis, um, is playing a different kind of rhetorical game um, that is much closer to uh, the kind of rhetoric that you hear from, as you said, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Breitbart, where what's foregrounded is this kind of ultra-nationalism, this hyper-jingoistic and patriotic uh, rhetoric, which is compatible with the discourse of white nationalism in, in a lot of cases, uh, but elides the specific uh, kind of calls for a, a white ethnostate or, or white separatism um, that people like Richard Spencer or Matthew Hanbach or Andrew Englund, uh, made their made their bones calling for.
2: All right, so um, let's hear a little bit of what mainstream, uh, um, if that's the right word, um, socially acceptable, if that's the right word, dog whistle, white nationalism uh, sounds like. uh, Here's a, a little clip from Laura Ingram talking in the way that Brendan's talking about.
3: In some parts of the country, it does seem like the America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. And they're changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like. From Virginia to California, we see stark examples of how radically, in some ways, the country has changed. Now, much of this is related to both illegal and, in some cases, legal immigration that, of course, progressives love.
2: You know, um, Jane, as you listen to that, I mean, there's you know, there's a term in political science called the Overton window. The Overton window is that frame of things that are acceptable to say Uh, on that axis. There could be some things that are are pressing the edges uh, uh, of the Overton window. uh, But then there's just stuff that you can't say. And I think we all know that in 2015, 2016, the presidential campaign radically expanded the Overton window in a not very palatable way. Um, Right. So is that what you're see- seeing here? I, I, would, yeah, I would
0: say so, and I think um, I would direct listeners. There's a terrific essay um, in The Atlantic by the reporter Adam Server who talked about this, that you know, while the alt-right movement itself is fracturing, while individuals are facing the legal and cultural ramifications of what happened last year in Charlottesville and kind of their actions in the last three years, the language they've been using has kind of entered the lexicon. And so you, know, you hear Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram using, you know, basically, you know, using kind of the diversity is code for anti-white kind of language that you get from, you know, hardened white nationalists. And you get the same rhetoric that you, know, you get the 14 words and you get, you know, you, but it's couched in terms that are supposed to be talking about like, oh, you know, when we say demographics, we don't mean demographics, even though you, know, you saw Laura Ingram attempt to walk that back. When, you know, David Duke was re- retweeting her, st- her a video of her statement saying, you know, oh, this is so on point. And, you know, she tries to say, like, oh, this is not at all about racism. This has nothing to do with race. But clearly, when you're talking about demographics, we can all hear what you're saying, as can, you know, parts of this very far right.
2: Jane, let's just hear uh, what Ingram sounds like when maybe she's uh, crawfishing back away from this. Yes, number two, number two.
3: I want to start tonight by addressing my commentary at the top of last night's show. A message to those who are distorting my views, including all white nationalists and especially one racist freak whose name I will not even mention. You do not have my support, you don't represent my views, and you are antithetical to the beliefs I hold dear.
2: You know, I'm going to ask both of you about this, and... and I'm going to guess also that I'm a lot older than both of you. But um, so in a way, I've sort of seen and heard a lot of this stuff. But even if you go back, Jane, to 2008 and reread some of the campaign speeches of Sarah Palin. uh, Now, they're not so much about immigration in in the way that you hear Ingram in that first clip. But, you know, because Obama's the issue, you know, there's this notion that he's a terrorist, that he doesn't hold the same belief system that we hold. There's, you know— the, and, and as she toured around the country as a vice presidential nominee, often in contravention of what John McCain had said was going to be his style of campaigning, I mean, she was kicking most of these same tripwires, uh, and, right. and I've I've had the displeasure of— Listening to a lot of Rush Limbaugh dating back to 1992, you know he he's always been exploring the outer edge of that Overton window and often crossing the line to it. So is this just more of the same, or do you see an actual difference here?
0: I think it is somewhat more of the same. You know, it's interesting how we keep having these kind of circular conversations about this particular issue, especially within kind of the you know the right, the far right stretches of the conservative movement. But I think that there definitely has been a critical shift. You know, in 2012, there was a, you know, the GOP autopsy document that really pointed to a lack of outreach to non-white Americans as part of the reason why Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan lost. And it appears that, you know, since 2015, that document has been largely abandoned, but it, it is interesting. I think the immigration issue, especially, you know, that, that the language around that has definitely changed, but, you know, it wasn't just Sarah Palin. I, you know, I don't know if others remember, you know, Ron Paul's 2008 campaign was somewhat sunk by all of these newsletters in which he had basically you know, play, praised the Confederacy or someone writing for in his voice did. And so you know, these types of views and attitudes, you know, either you know, they have never really gone away. A lot of times you, know, you saw that happening with Ron Paul and with other figures in which people kind of take it into account but largely ignore them. But I really think that since 2012 and specifically since, you know, 2015, I think that these views have really swirled more into the the mainstream lexicon.
2: Um, Brendan, before I go to you, because we're playing Laura Ingram's greatest hits today, uh, I want to take uh, you back in time uh, to the Obama administration. Uh, and this is how... Uh, back when there was such a thing as the Bill O'Reilly show, uh, this is Laura Ingram uh, appearing as a guest there. This is how she was talking then.
3: Median income is flatlining. Is that charge drummed up, or the fact that we have record number of people on food stamps? Is that drummed up? How about the approval ratings for President Obama? Those low approval numbers from Gallup and Pew and everyone else out there, are those drummed up? Are those all racially based as well? Is there any accountability left in Washington? Or are we supposed to hold the bar really low for President Obama simply because he's half black?
2: So that's what that sounded like then. A little less about immigration, a little bit more about plain old uh, American black-white racial divide. And so, Brendan, the question I want to ask you, because you really have had a chance to observe this, both you and Jane have had a chance to observe this up close. One question that I have about some of these movements that make up the white power movement, both its uh, extreme and the part that's maybe tracking a little bit towards the right center, is... How much of this is about the immigration movement and how much of it is sort of old fashioned black, white racism? We certainly saw a year ago in uh, Charlottesville, neo-Nazis who were chanting anti-Semitic stuff. I mean, is this all of a piece or or is there sort of this kind of cheesecake factory mem- uh, menu uh, of of racism and nationalism where kind of people pick what works for them? <laughs>
1: um <laughs> That's a, that's a very good and complicated question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that <clears throat> so the elements of of this movement that have ties to the older white power movement that you're talking that you're talking about for for them uh, the the race question is primary, um, and the issue of uh, white supremacy prevails above all else. And for that reason, they have to be kind of held at the fringes of the conservative political movement, um, for, for, for you know, for, uh, appearances sake. Um, the, wh- where, where I see this kind of wider, um, far right, uh, street movement going um, and and the the discursive move of talking less about uh, race in terms of like black and white and more about national identity and immigration um, is it, it, it emerges from you know it, it, it's drawing on that same tradition um, but it's moving in a Kind of, um, to me, to, to me, what is a sort of neo-fascist discourse that is uh, kind of defers the question of white supremacy a little bit? I mean, white supremacy is still central, mm-hmm. um, but again, it's it's more coded um, and it's a little bit more. Um, they're they're trying to uh, get that. They just they don't want people to talk about that. They don't want people to ask them about that. They want they want to talk about other things. Um, and then you know uh, that that would that would it would surely return to the forefront of the conversation uh, as as they gain power and support. Um, but it is like it is very incoherent mm. and chaotic and um there's there are is a, there was a lot of infighting over these like political and ideological questions um but what what i have seen in what i saw in 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 portland last week and what i'm seeing more of in my research and reporting is um this move towards ultranationalism that is coded white supremacy but gives them plausible deniability about it 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 is effective um... they are able to attract uh... some non-white people who have uh... invested class interests in the status quo um... who that then who that then they can point to as evidence of their not being racist. Um, All right. Brendan, before
2: we run out of time here, I want to just veer over to one more thing here before, just before I run into um, a clock problem. So um, one of the questions that I think both of you have been very interested in is um, how the mainstream media covers this stuff. Uh, can you cover it without normalizing it? The New York Times uh, got a lot of pushback uh, a few months ago for a profile of uh, one of these white power people. And, and then most recently, um, uh, NPR has taken a lot of flack, uh, Flack uh, Noel King uh, interviewing the the aforementioned uh, Jason Kessler, Um, And and so there's this sort of sense that, on the one hand, I don't think anybody thinks it's a good idea to ignore these movements. Uh, You guys wouldn't be doing the jobs that you're doing uh, if you thought it was a good idea to ignore these movements. On the other hand, there are times when you interview them uh, where it does seem as though they're being allowed to say their piece uh, and and maybe be a little bit more normalized in exactly the way that they hope to be. So, Jane, maybe you can get us started on this question.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting issue because I think that that has been a major mistake. I think that giving, you know, Richard Spencer a profile in which you talk about him being stylish and kind of like the GQ response, uh, you know, the GQ white nationalist, you know, that's exactly the type of coverage that they're looking for. You know, the reason why Unite the Right was a failure was because Jason Kessler pitched it directly to, you know, Trying to go after that kind of khaki and button-down look, and uh, regrettably for him, that means that a lot of people who wanted to, you know, take out their swastikas didn't show up. Mm-hmm. But I would also note that, you know, that does that is effective when Jason Kessler tries to make himself sound, himself sound as if, you know, he's this perfectly sane and reasonable person, and NPR lets him, you know, list the races from best to worst you know, and as if that, you know, listeners will automatically recognize that this is absurd on its face. I think that that asks a lot of readers and listeners who aren't as well versed in this particular world as, you know, Brendan or I or others are. And so I think it's, you know, it's good to report on this. But, you know, the stories that aren't being mentioned are the people, you know, what about the black family who lives next door? You know, what about, the immigrant family that lives across the street, what about the people who are impacted by this? Because, you know, it's not, you know, white nationalism isn't bad because it's offensive. White nationalism is bad because it's been proven again and again to, you know, become incredibly dangerous, not just, you know, at risk of what happened in Charlottesville, but to, you know, to to the creation of policies that make non-white Americans subordinate to white Americans. And we've seen that time and time again. So I think that it's important to really couch any reporting that's done on this movement. We you, you're you not reporting on this as being an interesting curiosity or like, you know, look how this guy who wants to Duke is saying these things. Isn't that interesting? I think the important story is, you know, how is this spreading? How is it being described? What's the history of it? And what do we do about it?
2: Yeah, well, I, I have some thoughts about that, too, but maybe I'll save them for when the phone calls come in a little bit later. Uh, Brandon, uh, what's your take on this?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's 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 incredibly hard and I think that there are I think there are some structural limitations that um, that that white nationalists and and white supremacists uh, take advantage of in, in terms of how they interact with the media. I mean, if you are a like local news segment and you have a local news station and you have 30 seconds to like cover some like upcoming rally or something and you know, and that like that's a great opportunity for 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 Kessler or for Spencer or whomever to just get like get a soundbite with that with, in the knowledge that the you know the, this is going to appear in, in a context where it won't be critiqued or unpacked, um, which is something that takes time and resources and reporting and like it's just you know it, it, it's as much about the state of the media industry as a whole, um, as, as anything else. I think that the other, I I mean, it's incredibly important to address how these, um, you you know, the, the people, the, the people that, that are actually threatened by this ideology, um, how they are impacted by it. And, and, and the way to do that is when, when, when Kessler says like, here, here's what I, here's the America that I envision, just ask him, how? how? Like, how are you going to make that happen? And there's like there's no there's no civil way to describe ethnic cleansing that doesn't, uh, you know, immediately that they immediately tell on themselves. Um, so so I, I think that's that's the other key thing that I don't think enough reporters do is ask them, how are you going to get what you want?
2: All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, Brendan O'Connor, freelance reporter, uh, writing about uh, white supremacy and, uh, and fascism, neoliberalism for places like The All, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. Jane Costin, senior politics reporter at Vox with a focus on conservatism and the American right. Uh, Brendan and Jane, thank you so much uh, for doing this today. We're going to take a little break, uh, catch our breaths, and then uh, you are welcome to call in about this, 860-275-7266. Let me t- set up A few question parameters. I mean, one of them is the thing that we're just talking about. How does the press cover this without normalizing and almost participating in it? Um, uh, What are the mistakes being made? Or should they just go for it uh, and 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 hope ultimately that they tell a big enough story that people kind of get it? Um, And I think that the other question is the one that Jane was laying out too. that whole question of to what degree has this stuff, this kind of rhetoric, this kind of thinking uh, seeped into mainstream discourse. I mean, maybe they don't get the kind of turnouts at the rallies that they got last year, but maybe that's also because some of it went someplace else. Anyway, your thoughts about white power, white nationalism, its role right now uh, in August of 2018 after this. Listen to
3: some bullet heads, the madness that he's saying, this is way.
2: All right, so we're back. Uh, I'd love to have a conversation with you about what we've just been talking about, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. First of all, the phone number that you would call would be 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. I'd like to point out that we got through that entire like 30-minute conversation without using the T word. I think we didn't use the T word anyway. Um, and but I'm going to be using the T word pretty soon because I think that that's one of the things that's different. So let me go back, and let me just say that, um, and I said this in the little announcement that precedes the news, something we call the billboard. Um, you know, I worked for 16 years at WTIC, which would air Rush Limbaugh every day. In fact, he started, his his show started airing on WTIC the same day I started on WTIC. So I heard a lot of Rush Limbaugh. And frequently he would say stuff that I thought was racist, uh, that that crossed way over, you know. And so he'd say that uh, this is way before the great kneeling crisis in America, way before that, uh, years and years and years before that. He would say that a, a lot of times an NFL game looks like a knife fight between the Crips and the Bloods. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I would on one occasion, I think I only did this once, but he, he, whatever it was, he said it was whatever he said. It was worse even than that. And I went to station management. and I said, you know, he just said this really racist thing on our radio station, you know, and we're a nice radio station. Uh, I don't know who owned us at that time, probably some version of CBS or Infinity or something. But um, I said, maybe we should run a disclaimer <laughs> <laughs> this is how naive I was. I said, maybe we started a disclaimer or an announcement saying, you know, we, we don't feel that way. Um, and he looked at me like I was crazy uh, because like they knew what Rush Limbaugh was. He wasn't, they weren't racist. I mean, they really weren't. I knew all the people who ran the station. They weren't racist. They weren't terrible people. They just were airing this really terrible programming. But, but in any case, um, it's been going on that way for a really long time, uh, that kind of rhetoric. Now, it's changed in other ways. And just even talking to our guests today, uh, they got me thinking a little bit. There's a way in which there are sort of gateway drugs, right? So let's, like, what's the easiest kind of white nationalism? Well, it's probably uh, uh, A, too many Muslims, letting too many Muslims in, right? Uh, you can get a, a bigger group of people to go along with that. And then probably the next step down uh, is too many Hondurans, too many people from these Latin American countries showing up at the border. We need a wall, too many people coming in. All right. So, those are things which they have two defining characteristics which make them a little bit different from garden variety white power as we knew it, you say, in the 20th century. One of them is okay, so playing a little bit off fears of Muslims post 9 11, paranoia, stuff like that. Muslims are currently, you know, have been defined. Uh, as much as possible by hate groups as dangerous uh, and and not like us and with a set of um, aims uh, that 's inculcated by their religion they 're very divergent from American goals and then there 's sort of the other group and that 's the latin american immigrants it 's a different kind of thing uh, President Trump there I said the T word talked about you know rapists and murders and drug dealers, but I think there 's more than that there 's you know and that 's the way he coined it I, and he may have succeeded in shifting the debate a little bit towards that idea. I think the original idea was. They're coming for our jobs. They're coming for our money. They're coming for our way of life. Uh, the more they get, the less we have. And so th- those are kind of the gateway weight power things. And and you can get more people, people who would be very uncomfortable with swastikas and clan hoods and some of the other stuff that you saw in Charlottesville. It'd be okay with this stuff, right? And so that's, in a way, you could sort of look at it that way, that there, there's a, a, a... And, okay, now let's talk about the other big difference. The other big difference is the T word. Never before, never before in my lifetime, I would say you'd have to go back quite a ways in American history uh, to find a president who was in any way okay with this stuff. So think about George W. Bush, who was a very conservative president, but ultimately, you know, arguably more progressive on certain aspects of immigration path to citizenship and deportation, uh, I mean, reduction of deportation than even President Obama, right? And even after 9-11, his, you know, one of his first uh, clarion calls was that, you know, we are all united in this fight and our your Muslim neighbor is not your enemy and blah, 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 stuff. So that was George W. Bush, a very conservative president, ultimately, maybe the architect of some uh, pretty stupid military operations that fed off a lot of negative feelings occasioned by 9 11. Uh, there's a lot of things you can fault him for. But I don't think, you know, I mean, we can talk a little bit about how he ran in 2000 and how he ran against John McCain in 2000 and where the race card got played during that campaign, because as a campaigner, George W. Bush was no holds barred. I mean, he was willing to, you know, really get the knives out. But really, as a president, you I don't think you saw the kind of rhetoric that's a pretty frequent uh, issuance from the mouth of Donald Trump uh, and the the Twitter account of Donald Trump, where whence most things come, and so to me, that's the, pl- the those are the two different th- places we're in. I mean, I don't know. I'm 63 years old. I've seen a lot of American racism, and I've seen a lot of American anti-Semitism, uh, and I've seen it you know I've seen it embodied in in you know fringe groups like the KKK. The difference now is I think there is a way using Muslims and using uh, Central Americans and and people coming up out of Mexico uh, towards the Mexican-American border. Uh, There's a way to make it a little bit more socially acceptable. Um, And I think the other thing that's the big difference, and it's it's married very much to that first thing, is that there's a president, a president of the United States who is willing to oversee that set of ideas. I mean, he's willing to overtly endorse some of those ideas, the ideas I just talked about, about Muslims and and people from from Central America. Um, And he's willing to tacitly, at a dog whistle level, endorse some of the other ideas. Hence, you have the notion that there were some fine people uh, marching side by side with the people in swastikas, uh, uh, the people chanting Nazi chants uh, a year ago in Charlottesville. That's the dog whistle part of it. It's like even some of those guys, even the David Duke kind of guys, um, you know, there's a there's a little bit of approval or 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 tolerance of them and their views coming out of the White House. That's the that that to me, those are the two big differences these days. But I love to hear. And I think the media hasn't changed that much. Um, If it's changed, it's changed because, yeah, Laura Ingraham can use that kind of gateway nationalism to assemble a statement that she then has to walk back anyway. So I'm 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 less convinced that it seeped into the media in a way that it didn't exist before. But you could talk me out of that. 860-275-7266. Let's get going here with Stephanie in Madison. Hi, Stephanie.
4: Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment on um, your previous subject about the media and how it presents the idea of racism and modern racism. And I think it's important to also mention that regardless of how the media presents um, you know, these stories about blatant racism, the people who are listening are going to have preconceived notions, even if they don't think they're blatantly racist. They're going to have preconceived notions about race relations in this country that come from the history of our country, which is not well represented in our educational systems, which are controlled by the government, um, and as well as you know, the way that race ties into capitalism and, and class economics, which really aren't also covered in our educational system. So we have a general public that really isn't educated on the history of race in this country and on the way that uh, people of color have been subordinated for centuries.
2: But let me just ask you where that leads you when you're thinking about how the press covers this. Because, I mean, there's one argument you could make using a little bit about of what I just understood you to say, um, and maybe I didn't, uh, is that, well, I mean, given all that, uh, if you put Jason Kessler on the air and interview him, uh, a number of people will basically believe all the stuff that he says anyway, um, and a number of people will be repelled by the stuff that he says anyway. And there's a question as to whether there's any middle ground. People who either could be swayed towards his point of view by hearing him in an interview on National Public Radio. Uh, oh, and uh, uh, would there also be a slice of people who could be who could see him to be exposed for less than what he claims to be with the right kind of debunking in an NPR interview? And I guess that that's sort of, you know, if, if we just latently are already believing this stuff anyway, is there any middle ground? Does it even matter in, in that circumstance?
4: Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really about, like you said, contextualizing all of these people and making sure that. Um, You know, even before they come on the air, the listeners are educated in a way so as to be able to form their own opinion that is based in actual fact and not based on, you know, the propaganda that that those people would hope that they would have been absorbing instead. So, you know, the news does play into it. The media does play into it in making sure that even when white nationalism isn't in the headlines, we're talking about the history of slavery and the history of concentration camps and and the United States participation in, um, you know, just Thousands of examples of ways that the United States government has been complicit and has perpetuated, uh, you know, the subordination of people of color. So, you know, if people have that context, they'll be able to to form an educated opinion about these people. But without that, they're going to be able to be swayed a lot more easily.
2: All right, Stephanie, thanks for your call. I hope you're right about that. I'm not sure that I'm not sure I have that high a hope. But anyway, let's take a break. Andy from Litchfield's on the line next. If you want to be on after Andy, call right now eight six zero two seven five. 7266.
0: Revolution's rumble to be ruled in impunity is tradition continuity. I pity the country, I pity the state, and the mind of a man.
3: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from me, Kyone Wolf, the part of Bill Curry, was played by Omarosa. On tomorrow's show, it's election day, so we're taking phone calls from you who've been at the polls. And now, back to Colin.
2: All right. Um, yeah, I hope you will uh, listen tomorrow. It's something we do every election cycle, uh, both for primaries and general elections. And what we do is we try to put together a panel of, or sort of a round robin of people who... Uh, They're not politicians, they're not political insiders, nothing like that. Uh, We try to find people uh, with kind of really not very political occupations if we can. So it's troubadours and poets and farmers and stuff like that. Um, And we just want to hear about the experience of voting, how it felt. You know, Some years you feel very patriotic and hopeful about your country. Sometimes you see some sign or you have some interaction, particularly if you live in a small town that was meaningful to you. And sometimes you just feel really lousy. Anyway, uh, you can call us right now. Not about that, but about the conversation we're really having about the emergence of white power movements. Or maybe just the consistency of white power movements. The persistence of white power movements. Uh, Here's Andy in Litchfield. I said he'd be next. Go ahead.
5: Hello, uh, Colin. Sure. Andy here. Yeah, uh, I'm a fervent listener to uh, WNTR. And I I try not to miss your show um, on a daily basis. And I have yet to hear anybody mention anything about Sarah Giong, who was just hired by the New York Times as an editorial writer. And um, she is one of the most racist individuals that I've ever heard. And she gets a pass. She's a Harvard graduate. She's of Asian descent. And you can go online and you can listen. You can Google up uh, Sarah Giong, New York Times, and find out the absolutely racist uh, tweets That that she's responsible for.
2: Okay, so just to sort of contextualize this a little bit. So uh, Zhang's tweets, the ones that you're talking about, they are tweets in which she says what she's essentially doing is inverting um, typical kinds of uh, racist constructions and saying, basically, this is what they would look like or sound like uh, if you tweeted them about white people. Um,
5: that's That's not what she says.
2: That is what she says.
5: No, that that's the that's her uh, that's the mia culpa from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. That is not what she says. She she has a long history of saying white people have stopped breeding. Y'all go extinct soon. This was my plan all along. Um, right. Are white peop- are white people genetically predisposed to burn faster in the sun. That's, just, that's logically being only fit to live underground. I mean, these are these are uh, cancel white hashtag cancel white people.
2: Right. Well, you well, take that sun thing. I mean, you don't see that as a, a satirical inversion of something that is well, said well, that, about people that, of color.
5: That's a handy excuse. But that, if, if people go to read the articles on Sarah Jeong, they will find that that's not the case. She's not. Sim- uh, it was the, the black woman who inverted the her inverted Sarah uh tweet.
2: Let me ask you something. Andy, yes. do you feel menaced by Sir Roger Zhang? Do you think something bad might happen to you?
5: No, because you, I, I don't feel menaced by any anybody who any white any uh, black racist either. I don't feel menaced by anybody. Right. But you guys don't mention that there are people out there who would like to menace
2: white people. Right. Well, one reason you don't feel menaced, Andy. I hate to break it to you, is because you're white, um, so, and that's it's, it's one of the reasons that it's kind of hard. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not defending everything that Sarah ever did. Where do you live, Colin?
5: Where do you live? Uh, uh, you live uh, in West Hartford, right?
2: Uh, well, where I live, I don't know how relevant that is. Yeah, oh, I live it's very relevant. I, I live you a block a from the Hartford home? line. Yeah, you
5: bought a house. Mm-hmm. So where did you didn't decide to move into the into Hartford, or uh, Hartford, did and, you?
2: Andy, you seem like you know a lot about me, but you probably don't know that I've lived in Hartford for uh, many parts of my life for many years, including a number of years on Zion Street, which is probably a neighborhood a lot of people wouldn't be all that comfortable living. So yeah, Andy, thanks a lot for bringing up where I live. I have lived in Hartford. I have chosen to live in a city. I lived a few it, blocks it, from it, blocks, a few blocks from this building on Woodland Street here on Asylum Hill. So yeah, but th- here's the truth, Andy. Sarah Zhang, you. know you know, whatever it, whatever she is and whether it was a good idea for The New York Times to hire her, I mean, is a pretty complicated question. But the truth is, you're not in any danger from Sarah Jean. There are people of color who are in danger because of some of the activities of the white power movement. And, and that's sort of I mean, I think all this crying about, oh, my God, Sarah zhang 's going to get me uh, is a little misplaced. Uh, you know, it, it's an unfortunate thing. I think if she could go back in time and not tweet that stuff, she's sh- she certainly would have. But I think another thing that happens, I'll just well, let me just pontificate for one second. Um, this is something I say all the time is if I were a black person living in America, person of color, but particularly if I were a black person living in America, I'd be crazy every day. I'd be really, really angry about stuff that had happened, stuff that happened to me, ways in which in very casual, microaggressive ways I was discriminated against and sometimes in not so microaggressive ways, macroaggressive ways. And I'd look around at unfairnesses and disparities and I would be nuts. <laughs> you know, I would be out of my mind. And I, I think when people grow up a different color in this country, people who grow up not white, they often get got into states of mind that are hard for us to, to associate with or even to imagine. Um, and so I'm, I'm not saying this, I I don't really know that much about Sarah Zhang. I've read those tweets. I've read a couple of the articles, uh, about it, but I think it's awfully easy for somebody who's white and has enjoyed the advantages of being white in this society to go, look at her. She's disgusting and she's out to get us. Whatever will we white people do? We're in such danger now from this Asian woman. Uh, I think that's kind of a, a little bit of a red herring. Uh, all right, uh, I've got time for maybe one or, ideally, two callers, depending on how it worked up these callers make me. Remember, I didn't sleep much last night. I may be kind of cranky. Uh, here's Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter.
6: Colin, I I think I know more about you than any other radio uh, or TV personality with with your age and uh, your uh, where you live and uh, your I, I just love it uh, <laughs> because you're so open. Um, but. Um, I uh I am menaced by this president. I feel menaced by this president and the the the, the uh the language he uses. I can't stay on the radio. I can't uh say in mixed company with some of the things he says in his tweets and uh I don't know when uh the Republicans and the Democrats in Washington are going to get uh the the the, the gumption to call him out. They they it, it's it's uh you know the uh, they, uh the outlets on the on the left and the right and on cable are are clear but the people in Washington, including uh, you know our, our two senators, I think they're they're a little bolder than most, but it, they really are. Um, they're 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 more or less silent on 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 the blatancy of the president's racism and his inappropriateness. I mean that's just a tip of the iceberg with the president. But I'll uh, I know you got another caller, so I'll take it off. Yeah.
2: Well, I'll say one thing, Peter, while you are on the air, I can't I I forget how old you are. I've talked to you before, but uh, are you old enough to remember a movie called The Blob? <laughs> yeah well Yes. And in, in, uh, on TV. <laughs> okay. So the whole idea of the blob was one of the problems with the blob was you shot missiles out of it. But it made the blob stronger, you know, and you shot mm-hmm. guns at it. The blob got stronger, bigger, stronger, bigger. And there's a way in which rhetorically and verbally uh, President Trump's a little bit like that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some questions as to what would really happen. I don't know if you read the leibovich profile over the weekend of Paul Ryan. What would really have happened if Paul Ryan and uh, and Mitch McConnell and some of the other leaders had really laid down some markers and held to them, you know, whether that's That would have made a difference. But in general, it does seem to me the denunciations of President Trump make President Trump stronger, give him something to feed off of. I have yet to see the Joseph P. Welch in this equation. Uh, And and in any case, Joseph P. Welch, he's the guy who said in the answer, have you no shame about uh, McCarthy. Historians now say that that isn't really anything that made that big a difference anyway. I I don't it, it. The end of all this is very hard to see. And it's hard to see the words and the people speaking the words that ultimately will expose some of what we've been living through uh, since January of 2017. Anyway, got to stop here. Sorry to Scott. Uh, ran out of time. Got all worked about, out of I hope Sarah Zhang isn't in the parking lot. What if she does something to me? I'm so scared of Sarah Zhang. And as far, as far as that goes, really, that Tracy Wu Fastenberg, she looks like she could just turn on me in a heartbeat. You gotta watch out for these people.